It is good to be here. And wonderful lessons that we can all learn from a video like that, isn't it? Anyone here ever complain? No, never? Me either. I never complain. Okay, there's one honest person back there. Good, because remember, one of the things was don't lie either, right? Don't lie. Yeah, we, we all complain sometimes, and we need to be reminded that God's blessings are, are here every day. We're enjoying them again this morning to be in fellowship together as his people. What a blessing. Let's remember how important and how valuable it is to be able to be here each and every Sunday to worship God together like this. Today we have a, a few things that, as a church family, uh, we, we both celebrate and we also, we also grieve. And the first thing, of course, is the passing of Mrs. Annie Craker this past week. And so our thoughts and prayers continue to be with the Hyde family, the Craker family, and, and all of the extended family as they go through this time of, of loss. Um, but we also recognize as a church family that this is truly also a, a cause for celebration and an answer to prayer, none other than her own prayer that she was ready to go and be with the Lord. And so we celebrate that she has been granted that prayer. The Lord has taken her home, and we have faith that she is with him. And we, we just celebrate that thought. And so uh, we want to... We want to be comforted with those, those thoughts this morning. We also see that the Reimer family, some are represented here today. Welcome, and uh, a special happy birthday to you, Mrs. Reimer, and uh, we wish you uh, another happy and healthy year. So happy birthday to you. Uh, we also, uh, the Jones uh, family is here, Mr. Jones, and we, we uh, have been praying for your wife, of course, Amy's mother, who's in a serious car accident already how long has it been over a year over a year now but uh, we're thankful that she was able to make the trip obviously not up to being here this morning but we're thankful for the progress and we continue to pray for you and uphold you in our prayers as well so it's good to have you here would you now bow with me and let's pray together father god we are reminded again this morning of how many ways you have blessed us and Lord, we, we simply ask for your forgiveness where we so often, like the children of Israel, begin to complain even about the good things you have blessed us with. Lord, forgive us for that, and we pray that you would instead create in us thankful hearts, that we would be thankful for the many blessings you give us each and every day. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing of this church family. We thank you for each member of it, and that together we build one another up, we worship you and we obey your word as we seek to live it out in this world. And so, Father, we pray uh, that we would continue to mourn with those who mourn, that we could bring, bring comfort, that we could show it through acts of kindness, and that we would, in this way, uh, be your hands and feet to those who are hurting around us. We pray for the Hyde family and the Craker family, Lord, that in their time of loss you would comfort them, and that we would also be able to celebrate that Mrs. Craker is with you, that her faith has become sight. And so we pray that you would comfort them with those, those words and thoughts. Father, we pray now for this word. I pray, Lord, that you would simply form it on my lips the way you would have it be. I, I thank you, Lord, that you have been with me during this preparation time, and now I ask that you would give me the boldness, Lord, the power to speak it the way you would have me. May they be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
There was a cartoon in the Hong Kong Tatler newspaper that depicts Moses as he descended down Mount Sinai holding the Ten Commandments. Now, we can all visualize that from the children's video we just watched, and so I didn't uh, have the time to pull up the cartoon for you, but it's actually quite humorous. And so here we can, we can visualize Moses coming down. He's got one of the tablets in his right arm, one in his left arm, and then he's reporting back to the children of Israel what the Lord has said. And the caption reads, It was hard bargaining. We get to keep the milk and the honey, but the anti-adultery clause stays in. (laughs) Now, if you think about that for just a moment, it seems more than just a little absurd, doesn't it? But don't we often tend to do the same thing? You know, maybe not as blatantly as that, but Christians tend to approach the teachings of Jesus and the instructions of God's word in a similar fashion, as though they were somehow negotiable. As though we read the text, we see what God has said, but we think of them as something meaning less or different than what they've clearly stated. Often without conscious thought we do this, but every time we choose to do that, we we are actually saying, we're going to live life our way, God. We're going to live it on our terms, not yours. And when we do that, we are in effect saying, God, I know better than you. I know how life works in reality. Yours might look good in theory, but this is my life, and I'm going to live it my way. The Bible says in Judges chapter 21 and verse 25 that there came a time in Israel that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, we're not necessarily talking about people who are completely bad or are completely without conscience. What this is saying is that they still want to live life the right way, but they are going to choose for themselves what the right way is. They are going to live life in whatever way seems right in their own eyes rather than in God's eyes. These are sincere people, but they've taken God out of the equation. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 2 states this, Every man's way seems right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. I believe this describes the time in which we live perfectly. Everything is relative. We've, we've labeled our culture with many different things. We'll call it the postmodern age, the, the age of relativity. And the reason for that is because we've taken this individual approach to life where each person gets to decide for themselves what is the right way to live. We even take it so far as to say the right way for me may not be the right way for you. The, the way that may seem wrong to me could be right for you, and that's okay. And that is how our age can be summarized. It's not shocking, then, that we as Christians also struggle with this tendency, for it's the very culture in which we live has embraced this way of living. And so we have this tendency, and we want to negotiate away and justify the behaviors, attitudes, and actions in our lives that are simply flat-out contrary to God's instruction. The thing is, we simply don't want to change. And the plain truth is this. To follow Jesus and to live the Christian life that he modeled and taught us, it must be done on his terms, not our own. Just as the Ten Commandments God gave to Israel were non-negotiable, 
God has also given the body of Christ, his church, instructions to live by, which are non-negotiable as well. And so this morning, we want to look at some of those non-negotiables that God has given to us, his church. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 16 is perhaps one of the most familiar passages in scripture in this regard. Within it, Paul lays out almost all of the the core doctrines that the church has to live by in regards to its life and conduct. It also gives some deep theological insight into what it means to be a Christian. Now, as we look at these instructions, it's easy to forget that they were spoken to real people with real issues living in a real time and place. Now, one of the background uh, issues that was simmering In this context, in the church in Colossae, was in regards to a runaway slave named Onesimus and his owner Philemon. Now, Onesimus, of course, in that time, owning slaves was as ordinary for uh, someone to have as owning a car is for you. It was simply the way things were in that time. And so we're not making a commentary here on slavery, per se, but what we're focusing on is that Onesimus stole from his master Philemon and he runs away. Now, Roman law gave Philemon complete power to punish a runaway slave in whatever way he saw fit. This could include whipping, it could include imprisonment, and even he had the power to execute a runaway slave. Now, on his escape, Onesimus happens to meet up with the Apostle Paul in the city of Rome. Through Paul's witness and telling him about Jesus Christ, Onesimus comes to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is saved. He becomes a Christ follower. And so, now seeking to do what is right, Onesimus chooses to return to Philemon, to face up to his owner who he had run away from, even knowing that he could be whipped, imprisoned, or even executed. Now, things get really interesting when we learn that Philemon is also a Christian and a member of the church in Colossae. Now, Paul makes a personal appeal to Philemon in the letter that bears his name. It's a a small letter, only one chapter, tucked in the back of your Bible. It's named Philemon. If you've never read it before, why don't you do it this afternoon? It'll take you all of 15 minutes. But it is profound in the implications of what Paul is asking Philemon to do. He makes his appeal to Philemon. And he essentially, I'll boil it down for you, he essentially says to him, receive Onesimus, not as a runaway slave. Instead, receive him as your brother in Christ. And then he leaves the implications of that up to him as to what that would look like. The difference between receiving him as a runaway slave or as a brother in Christ. And he goes so far as to say this to Philemon. Receive Onesimus as you would receive me. The Apostle Paul is really laying on, really laying on the pressure. Receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul would have been received with honor as a distinguished guest in the home. And so the implications are quite clear as to how Paul would want Philemon to treat Onesimus on his return. Then to the church... In Colossae, he simply refers to Onesimus like this in chapter 4 and verse 9 of Colossians. He says, Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. That's all he says. 
but he essentially endorses a runaway slave, someone who has wronged a distinguished member of that church, and he says, he is now one of you. Treat him accordingly, because to me, he is a dear brother. This is a powerful message, a powerful request that Paul is making. So now, what would Philemon do? To not punish a runaway slave in that time and context could set a very dangerous precedent. And oh, how the tongues must have wagged. I'm sure everyone had an opinion on what Philemon should do. We can well imagine some of the other wealthy slave owners saying, Onesimus, or pardon me, Philemon, if you let Onesimus off the hook, it's going to give all the other slaves ideas. They're going to run away and say, hey, I'm a Christian now too. Receive me the same way. It's a slippery slope. Don't do it. We can well imagine conversations like that happening. And so Philemon faces a dilemma. Would his new faith in Christ change how he conducts his household business? Would it change the very fabric of how he lived his life, how he'd always lived his life, how his culture said you should live your life? Would his faith in Christ change that? Or would he simply dismiss it and carry on business as usual? We face the same dilemma each and every time we read God's word or hear it spoken. Will we allow God's word to move from the theoretical to the practical? Will it change how we live? Or will we, will we remain hearers of the word but not doers and so deceive ourselves? You see, God's word must move from the head to our heart to our feet. That's the progression. Head, heart, feet. We hear it up here. We need to allow it to sink to here. But then we must live it out through our actions. Let's look now at Paul's instruction. This is written to those who already believe in Jesus Christ and have committed to following him. And so we must remember, this is the standard that believers are being held to, not those outside of the faith. Here's the framework for Colossians. Paul uses the past tense, who we were before Christ, and he contrasts that with the present reality of who we are now in Christ. And so here, I'll give you a quick tour of the text. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13, we see Paul using past tense. He says, when you were dead in your sins. So past, you were that, you were dead in your sins. Then he moves on to present tense, verse 20. Oh, pardon me, uh, the, another past tense, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world. Again, past tense. Then he moves on to the present reality. Chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Again, he's saying, Now we are in Christ. We are with him. And so our actions should change. And it begins with our thought patterns. We are thinking about things above, not on things beneath. Set your minds on those things. Then verse 3. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So here we see again, past tense, for you died, present reality, you are now hidden in Christ, and your future hope, you will appear with him in glory. So past and the present, and then the future hope. 
And so now the description of the Christian is a profound one that he gives in verse 12. He says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Now let's stop and consider the implications of that statement for just a moment. Chosen people, chosen by God. You are the chosen. You are the elect. That is set apart by God, holy unto him. And so you are chosen. Now, who here feels like you've never been picked for anything in your life? You're always picked last in the playground. You haven't been chosen for any promotions at work. You haven't been chosen to receive any rewards. You haven't been chosen for anything. That's not true. God chose you. Think about that for a moment. You were chosen by the Creator. Now just allow that to sink in for a moment and then consider the next statement. You are deeply loved by God. Deeply loved. How many of you today long to know that you are deeply loved? This is Paul's simple formula for saying, this is who you are in Christ. You are deeply loved. Now some of you may feel like no one loves me. Or those who profess to love me, their love is fickle. It's weak. It, it changes all the time. And it's always self-seeking. There's, there's nothing in it for me. I'm not deeply loved by anyone. That's not true. You are deeply loved by God. This is who you are. And then Paul says, in essence, this is who you are. Embrace it and live it out. And so he outlines in the next parts of verses 12 to 13 how to do that. And here he lists for us six, which I believe are non-negotiables of living the Christian life. Six virtues that are to characterize every believer. The first is this, compassion. Clothe yourselves with compassion. Compassion is something that has been defined this way, and I love this definition. Compassion is relentless tenderness relentless tenderness. I like that. I like that word relentless. It means it just doesn't quit. It doesn't stop. It keeps going no matter what. Relentless. It's relentless towards the suffering, the miserable, the rejected, the abandoned, and the hurting. It relentlessly seeks out their good and, and to find ways of helping them and showing them the love of Christ. It is also relentless towards the arrogant, the pompous, the greedy, those who are hard to be compassionate towards. Because yes, we are called to be compassionate to all people. Was Christ any less compassionate towards the rich young ruler or Nicodemus as he was towards the the blind that were brought to him or the woman caught in adultery? No, Christ showed equal compassion to all. Christ died for the Pharisee and the prostitute alike. He showed compassion to everyone, whether they deserved it or not. And so, Paul says, we are to do the same. Show compassion to all, not based on whether or not they are deserving. But instead, this is how Christ lived, and we are called to live the same. Secondly, he says, be kind. Clothe yourselves with kindness. Now, kindness is very easy to identify in grand gestures, in the large, you know, just acts of generosity. But I believe that kindness is most often identified in the small kindnesses, the small gestures 
that we show each other each and every day. These are the things that just happen in the rub of everyday life as you associate with your family, as you talk with people at the coffee shop, as, as you just go about your business and daily life. Those small kindnesses, as we rub shoulders with people, is really where I believe we take on the fragrance of Christ in our life. We simply show kindness, not because we have to, but because Christ is in us. And so we seek to show kindness to people in even small ways. And this kindness, though it is identified through words and actions, it has to flow out of our hearts and out of our our true inner attitude towards others. Next, Paul lists humility and gentleness. Now, I have a hard time separating these two, even though they are distinct from one another, so I'm going to sort of lump them together for the sake of simplicity. Humility and gentleness. The pagans at Colossae in that time did not consider humility and gentleness to be virtues. Instead, they considered them weaknesses to expunge from your character. If you were humble, that meant you were humiliated. That wasn't something anyone wanted to be. No one wanted to be humiliated. You needed to have confidence, pride in who you were and in your status. And in fact, it was expected in that time that if you had accolades that you had performed in the past, you were expected to kind of put them up for yourself. To brag yourself up, that was the norm of that day. Humbleness was completely counter to their culture. On top of that gentleness, that wasn't rewarded. To be assertive was something that the Romans held in high regard. And so the world of that day did not value value these things at all, especially in a man. And yet here is the great Apostle Paul saying that humility and gentleness are to be the evidence of the new life in Christ. And so are these characteristics that you and I possess. Are these evidenced in our own lives and how we treat one another? We must walk in humility and humbleness and in gentleness. Then Paul lists patience. Again and again the scripture says, wait patiently on the Lord. We sang a song earlier this morning that said, Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. And we repeat that line. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Do we believe that? We sing it. We read it. Do we believe it? How patient are we? Do we take time to wait upon the Lord? In situations in your life, what, what are you facing right now? What is, what is weighing you down? What circumstances are beyond your control that are, that are keeping you frustrated, stressed, and worried? Are you bringing those things before the Lord and waiting upon Him? Are you waiting on Him to deal with that circumstance, to show you what to do or the way forward? This is God's will for us. We must wait upon Him. Now, it's become a running joke in our youth group that the most dangerous prayer you can ever pray is to ask God for patience. Because the thing goes that if you ask God for patience, he won't just give it to you. He will instead give you circumstances that require you exercise patience. And so at Bible camp when I was 16, I had a really tough cabin one week. And so I was just, my patience was gone. I had none left. And so at the prayer meeting the next morning, I asked them to pray for me that I would have patience. Well, guess what happened? The cabin didn't get better. It got worse. 
That next night, two kids wet the bed, and no one listened in Bible devotion. And I was like, what is going on? And I just remember praying before one diva and just saying, like, there was bedlam in the cabin, for real. Kids are jumping on the bunks, and I'm just like, Lord, help me. And somehow I got through it, and somehow that week got better, and somehow some of the boys in that cabin committed their lives to the Lord that very week. And I remember at the end of the week sharing all of this, and one of the senior counselors looked at me and asked, you didn't by chance pray for patience this week, did you? And I said, yeah, it was the beginning of the week. I asked the Lord to give me patience. And he's like, yeah, classic. <laughs> and then he explained it to me. To, to grow something within us, God doesn't just give it to us. He gives us circumstances that cultivate it within us. And so if you want to learn, learn patience in your life, watch out. <laughs> the Lord will give you opportunity. But you know what? It's through those things that I have learned patience through them. And I'm better equipped to handle it with patience in the present and going into the future. So be patient. And then finally, Paul wraps up this list of six with extending forgiveness to others. Verse 13, he says, Bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you may have against each other. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, this is a powerful statement in any time or place, but I want you to just try and imagine for a moment what Philemon must have been thinking when he heard those words for the very first time. This type of unconditional forgiveness was even more foreign in that time than it is in ours today. It was upside-down thinking. Seeking retribution, settling the score, and serving justice were the virtues that the Romans held above all others. To show any sign of weakness was to give the enemy a foothold. Might is right was their philosophy. To forgive was only inviting catastrophe. Philemon's decision as to whether or not he would forgive and receive Onesimus as a brother in Christ, his decision would set the precedent not only for the church, but also the watching community as to whether or not the radical teachings of Jesus Christ truly had the power to change a man at the most fundamental level. And the same holds true for us. Does the forgiveness of Jesus that we so eagerly seek to receive for ourselves, does it extend to others? Do we truly forgive others the way Christ has forgiven us? Or do we attempt to negotiate our way to something less, to justify our bitterness, to justify why we're holding on to a grudge, to justify why we're walking in unforgiveness? I had a brother once, and I betrayed him. With these words, African writer Lawrence Vanderpost begins a wonderful book entitled The Seed and the Sower. Within the pages, the story is told of two brothers from a small South African village. The elder brother is tall, athletic, a good student, and a natural leader. The younger brother was not so gifted. He had a back deformity and was very sensitive to his dis disfigurement. However, he had a beautiful singing voice. They both attended the same private school, and one night some of the older boys decided it would be fun to drag the younger brother out, rip off his shirt, and make fun of his deformity. They did it for so long that he finally broke down in sobs and cried. They continued their cruelty, pushing him into an abandoned water tank and then forcing him to sing there. The older brother was aware of what was going on, but still did nothing to rescue his younger brother. 
The younger brother survived, but his spirit was crushed. He returned to the family farm and lived a reclusive life and never sang again. During World War II, the older brother had a dream in which he realized that he had been like Judas to his younger brother, that he had betrayed him in his hour of need. And so convicted, he makes the incredibly difficult journey back to South Africa. He finally finds his brother and through tears confesses how badly he had betrayed him that fateful night. He begged for his forgiveness. But the younger brother just sat there, his face an expressionless mask, not uttering a single word. The older brother finally left without receiving an answer. He felt lightened that he had finally done what he should have done years ago, asking for forgiveness. But he was still heavy and saddened at the thought that he and his brother may never be reconciled. He went to bed that night with a heavy heart, and sleep eluded him. But then, in the dark of the night, he heard something. A sound so beautiful that he thought at first that he was dreaming. But then he realized it was the sound of his brother singing. And the song was none other than the one he had written for his younger brother to sing when they were just boys. The songbird had at long last been released from his dark cage. And by the power of forgiveness, the younger brother not only released his older brother, but he found himself set free as well. That in forgiveness, his own soul was set free, and for the first time in years, he could sing. Bear with each other, and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. In that story, the younger brother had a choice to make. He could forgive his brother, or he could hold on to the hurt, the bitterness, the resentment, the anger, and he could refuse that forgiveness. But let me ask you a question. Who is held captive? In the prison of resentment, bitterness, anger, and revenge, who is really imprisoned? Is it the one you refuse to forgive, or is it yourself? For if he had held on to the bitterness, Whose soul was he paralyzing but his own? Whose mind was held in bondage? Whose emotions frozen? If he had decided to hold on to the pain, the desire for revenge, all he would gain for his efforts was a bitter heart. It's been said, unforgiveness is like drinking poison, hoping that you'll hurt the other. To this, Jesus shows us the most wonderful antidote that flows straight from the mercy seat of God. While he was hanging on the cross, suffering, suffocating, and bleeding to death, Jesus looks down at the Roman soldiers, the ones who have just tortured him, crucified him. He looks out at the bloodthirsty crowd who even still are insulting him, hurling insults at him. Then the religious leaders at the back, satisfied that they had finally gotten rid of the troublemaker once and for all, and Jesus looks out over all of this and he says these words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And through that act of forgiveness, we, the captives, have been set free. And now we are free to forgive others in exactly the same way, unconditionally, the way Jesus has forgiven us. Let me ask you, are you forgiving people that way today? Are you bearing with the people in your life that as we, as we rub shoulders with people, we are, we are going to come up with hurts, grievances. There's, there's going to be things that eventually we need to forgive. 
are we doing so? Are we walking in the way of forgiveness? Are you doing that in your family? Are you doing that within the church? Are you doing that in your workplace, wherever you rub shoulders with people? Or are you holding on to the things, the slights, the insults? If so, you are keeping up a barrier that would stop you from restored relationships and poison your own heart in the process. And so today, let me tell you, you can choose the better way. You can choose God's way, the way that will not only set others free, but yourself as well. Forgive others unconditionally, no strings attached. Give the matter over to God and see what he will do. And Paul concludes this by saying, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we have been confronted by your word. Your word leaves no room for argument. It leaves no space for negotiations. It simply states for us in the most clear terms how we ought to live our lives as followers of Christ. And so, Lord, as we are today confronted by your word, as we are challenged in our own context, for each of us, just like Philemon, face situations where these things are necessary and where they are not easy to do. But, Lord, if we are to take you seriously, we receive today that we must act in accordance with the word we have heard. And so, Father, we pray that today these words would move from our minds to our hearts and then to our feet that we could walk in the way that you have shown us. Lord, we understand we can't do this in our own strength. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, it is your strength that enables us to live this way. And so we ask, strengthen us, help us, empower us to live our lives the way you have shown us. Bless this church family, I pray. Unify us, Lord, as we seek to live this out in this time, in this place, as we live with one another. I pray, Lord, that through it, the watching world would see that it's not just theory, but your gospel has the power to change the fundamental way in which we live our lives. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.